1970, two university students who had recently fallen in love were murdered in an apartment in Columbus, Ohio. Their names were Mary Petrie and Bill Sproke. The crime was so brutal it drew comparisons to the Manson family murders that shook the country less than one year earlier. Police received hundreds of tips, but within a few months the case went cold. Now, a reporter and the sisters of the two victims work together, piecing together new forensic evidence, and they are told by Columbus police this case can still be solved 50 years later. Listen to Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who has the power to help you believe again. Here is the captain. It's good to see you, and it's good to be seen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Day Glow Vibes by the hardworking folks over at Mast Landing Brewing Company. This is a double dry hopped, double India pale ale. Wow. Someone really likes to double things up over at Mast Landing. So a DDH double IPA, if you will. 8.1% ABV. This one is not boozy at all, but it is full bodied and a little pungent. Garage grade three and a half bottle caps out of five and let's give some thanks and praise to our friends for helping us with this week's beer fund first up we have jen vaughn from queens new york and also helping us fill up the fridge this week we have jocelyn dozier in grapevine texas everybody we mentioned they went to our website and clicked on the pint glass and that helped us out with this week's beer run and for that we thank you yeah b-w-r-u-n beer run Go to the website store and get you some. Get you some swag. Get you some True Crime Garage swag. It's a great way to look good, feel good, and support the show. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. What if it's you? Damon Lee was born in 1980, and after immigrating to the United States with her mother and brother in 1992, she spent most of her teen years growing up in Baltimore County, Maryland, 
Hay was a great student. She was incredibly smart, with many friends and played lacrosse and field hockey. Hay attended the magnet program at her school, Woodlawn High School. This is where and when she and fellow classmate Adnan Syed really became acquainted. Adnan is a popular student athlete as well, and the two hit it off and started dating sometime in early 1998. The relationship becomes pretty serious as far as high school relationship standards go. The two go to prom together. November 1st, 1998, Hay breaks off the relationship. According to Hay's diary, Adnan does not take this well. The relationship then becomes something of an on-again and off-again relationship, and it appears the two officially and finally break up just before Christmas 1998. January 1st, 1999, Hay is interested in a new boy, and it's an older boy from her work. His name is Dawn, and the two go on their first date together. On January 13, 1999, Heyman Lee is last seen at school. Then, at about 3.30 p.m. that day, Hay's family becomes concerned when she fails to pick up her little cousin. Later, she is reported missing. Less than a month later, Hay's body is discovered partially buried in Leakin Park, In late February, police subpoena Adnan's cell phone records and begin questioning the persons listed on Adnan's call list. On February 28, 1999, Baltimore police interview Jay Wilds, a guy who says that he is very good friends with Adnan. Jay tells police that Adnan showed him Hay's lifeless body in the trunk of her car. After Adnan asked Jay, He helps Adnan bury the body in Leakin Park. In September of 1999, Jay Wilds signs a plea deal, agreeing to testify that he helped Adnan dispose of the body. In February of 2000, Adnan Syed is convicted of first-degree murder. Then in 2014, this closed case would change dramatically with the launch of a podcast called Serial. The Serial podcast featured the Heyman Lee murder case and took a closer look at the case for and against Adnan Syed. New interest in the case led to special appeals in the Maryland courts. Since then, the murder conviction has been vacated, charges dropped, conviction reinstated, and appealed again. This week, we check in with our friends Brett and Alice from the Prosecutor's Podcast for a discussion about the Heyman Lee murder investigation, the case for and against Adnan Syed, and where this very complicated case sits today. This is True Crime Garage. What if it's you? And Brett, two of the things that that I thought you did incredibly well with your coverage of this very complicated case was to be one to be very expansive on on every 
different aspect of this case. The, the one aspect that I thought was so necessary with your expansiveness and how much you go into great detail was the timeline. Because on Serial, it, it's a whole different packaged presentation than what you get when I tuned into the prosecutors for your coverage of this complicated case where they're being a little more theatrical. They're kind of bouncing around a little bit and the timeline's not so clear. In fact, the timeline they give is a very short, very brief, almost a glimpse of the true timeline. And you guys gave a very detailed and expansive timeline. Obviously we don't have time to go through that here today. Cause I think to get through that timeline, it took what, two, three full length episodes that you guys did. And what I want to hone in on for, we, we got a bit of a, a, a complicated situation here ourselves because we're going to have a lot of people that will listen to these episodes. And there's going to be a small portion of that audience that has no clue of the case that we're talking about. So they're hearing about this case for the first time. And then we'll have the large majority that are well aware and have listened to Serial, maybe even had gone back and listened to it a second or third time because it was so good. But for you, and we'll start with uh, Alice because she's the the only lady in the room. Sorry, Captain. What were some of the key parts in the timeline for you? Yeah, thank you guys for um, you know having us on and talking about this. I think it's really important to talk about the timeline. And here's the thing about the way we structure all our episodes. We always have a timeline, and this case was no exception. And the reason it's no exception is that when you lay out the facts and you lay them out in context and in relativity to each other, a lot of the story comes through. Whether you are leaning one way or the other, the timeline is an incredibly important part of any type of case. And we always tell our listeners, we want you to think for yourselves. We want you to go to the primary sources and to um, engage with the evidence uh, and don't have someone just tell you what it is. And part of that is knowing where each of the pieces of the timeline, each piece of the case fits together in relation to another thing, especially I know that cell phone calls are a huge, huge deal in this case. And once you put all of these cell phone pings within the timeline and see where it fits within the story, it tells a much different story than cherry picking pieces and bits of the timeline or pieces and bits of these cell phone pings. So I think one very important thing that we do in the timeline, as we do in all our cases, is to put kind of those cell phone pings, which have drawn a lot of controversy from all sides of, you know, the this this entire kind of story, um, but puts them into context of where they fall and how certain stories fall apart when you look at the timeline based on these cell phone pings. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I mean, I've been listening to y'all show for a long time and you guys often do a timeline as well. And I think you probably see the same thing we do when you actually lay out when events occur and you lay out what's happening in relation to other things. A lot of times by, by the time you finish the timeline, you actually have a pretty good idea of the story, even if you haven't gone that deep into the evidence. And I think you talk about serial serial is an amazing piece of entertainment. And one of the reasons is because it kind of keeps you guessing the whole time. And 
we always find that we're, we want to be entertaining, but we also want to be enlightening. And the way to do that is not to hide the ball for people. So we always want to lay out a timeline. And obviously the events of that day are important, but so are the events that surround it. When you look at their relationship, they dated for a long time. They broke up a couple of times. They got back together. They had broken up in early December, but then at Christmas, they're giving each other gifts. And you have to wonder if it wasn't in maybe even both of their minds that this is going to be a breakup like the last two. This is going to be one way to get back together. But then Hay falls kind of head over heels for Dawn. And a week before this all happens, she's changing her instant messenger profile to talk about how much she loves Dawn and how her job is to stare into his baby blues. And her, her number one thing is being his girlfriend. Very public thing, particularly at that time in 1999. And the kind of thing that you could imagine might have came as, as a surprise to Adnan, even if he knew that she was dating this other guy, she'd been dating him for a week. And all of a sudden, she's completely replaced him with this guy. And I think when you look at that timeline, you realize that the events of January 13th, sometimes you think, oh, that was a month after they broke up. But not really. Not really. Not if you compare it to other sort of emotionally charged events that are occurring. With this case being so polarizing, especially on social media, did you guys have any hesitation to cover it? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) It is a polarized case. I think um, the reason it took us, you know, uh, several years to, to cover it was not so much because we were afraid of blowback or anyone um, being angry with us because people will be angry at you no matter what you do. More so it's because we didn't want to just um, pile on. This case has obviously been covered by a lot of different content creators. And we've always said we don't want to just be another voice in the wind for any case. There are a lot of very, very worthy cases to cover. And um, we like to do you know, as thorough research as possible. And that takes time as well. And this, no doubt, because of the trials that have occurred, because of a lot of trial transcripts and you know, content that's out there. There's a lot of things that you have to digest in order to do the case justice. So part of the reason it took us a while to cover it it was the amount of research it um, required, but also wanting to make sure that when we did cover it, it was to add value in the case and not just repeat what's already been said before. And we knew, however it came out, there'd be people who were upset about it. I mean, that's just the way it is and that's fine. And, you know, we've never shied away from controversy and we've certainly never changed our position based on what's going to be the more popular view. And I will say this, the thing that when we, when we started to record this and and first episode and we're getting ready, I was really nervous about it, but I was nervous because I felt like we owed it to, we owed it to Hay and we owed it to Adnan to get it right and to be as straightforward as we could be with it. We're prosecutors. We look at this from a different perspective. But we did not come into this thinking, we want to make we want to make sure that it looks like Adnan Syed is guilty. We want to support our, our friends in the prosecution team in, in Baltimore or whatever. We didn't do that. We were always going to go through the file, and it's lengthy. It takes a lot of time to go through the entire case file, to read the defense file, to read the appeals in this case. And there's a lot of information out there beyond what you hear in, in podcasts. That took a lot of time, but once once we got through that, a story emerged from for us that we were going to share with our audience. And we were going to do that whether people were happy about the outcome or not. That's one thing that I was very curious about as prosecutors. Let's step aside from the podcast world for a moment and just go into prosecutor world. 
But, you know, on True Crime Garage, we, we are so invested in the investigation or the manhunt, finding out who did it and then, and then apprehending them. That's the, the parts that we really dive into and we really want to cover and go through that. That's where our interests lie. But as a prosecutor, by the time you guys catch your case, they've already told you this is who we think did it and here's a whole bunch of reasons why. So where an investigator, when they catch a case, they are often trying to sort out exactly what happened. And then even in some jurisdictions and a lot of a lot of jurisdictions, uh, hopefully one day, maybe all of them, that police protocol becomes, OK, this is this is a homicide and we we will investigate it as such until the evidence proves otherwise. But when a prosecutor catches their case, as said, they, they already have either a grand jury or police telling you this is who we think did it and here's the the evidence to why so how do how do you guys look at a case when you first pick it up and and what do you do you reinvestigate everything that was done do you do you tear through everything that's done and 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 let the evidence lead you to what you believe the outcome to be or do you immediately start building your case against the person that they've told you I think this is actually a place where we have a we have an advantage because you're right. I mean, there are some cases, and Alice and I have been involved in them, where you're with your investigators pretty early on, and you really are sort of directing the investigation. Those are a lot of fun, but a lot of times you're you're 100 right. One day somebody walks into your office, they have a file, they plop it on your desk, and they say, "Hey, we think this guy did X, Y, and Z. Let me know if there's enough. You know, we're ready to we're ready to charge this guy." And our job when you're a prosecutor is not unlike what you're doing when you're a podcaster. You take that file. And you're looking through it and you're, as we often say, your ethical obligation is not just to prosecute and it's not just to win. It is to ensure that justice is being done and that the person who you are prosecuting is guilty and that there is the evidence to convict them. So when you look through that file, you're looking for what are the elements of this offense? Do we actually prove that? How do we know this happened? What are we relying on? What is our evidence? Can you trust this eyewitness? Why didn't they test for fingerprints? Is there any DNA? Like you're going through, you're thinking through all the holes in your case for several reasons. Number one, because you want to get it right. Number two, because you know one day a defense attorney is going to look at that same file and they're going to be looking for those holes. So that's what we do in our job. And when in, in, a, in the podcasting world, it's the same thing. You get this file and you read through it and you're looking for holes and you're looking for what did the police miss or what are other people missing who are criticizing? What, what is the defense making too much of? What are they getting wrong? What are they getting right? Where are the weaknesses and where are the, where are the strengths? And I think that is an advantage because we do it every day in our jobs. It helps us actually when we look at these cases to really break them down and figure out whether or not they hold up. And for those who are not familiar with this case, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler alert here. But if you were to go back and listen to Serial, you learn very quickly into the very first episode that this story is going to be about the murder of a, a young woman, Heyman Lee, who had her whole life ahead of her. She was a very bright young woman making moves to, to further her experience and go off to college. And she probably would have went on to do great things. However, she is killed and her ex-boyfriend Adnan Syed is convicted. Uh, originally, you know, he's, he's charged and they build a case against him, and then he's later convicted. So much of his the case against Adnan, as as it were presented by the podcast serial, was that 
they were able to convict him heavily in part due to Jay Wilde's testimony against him. Now, how would you guys, you two as prosecutors, handle a situation like this? Because your your main witness in this case is A, not credible, and B, not even likable. Like, what what is the strategy when you are dealt this card in your attempt to convict the accused. So that that's a really good question. And of course, Jay Wilds and his changing story are, uh, you know, endless, endless fodder for conversation about this case. And one thing that we emphasize in all of our episodes is that you are given your witnesses as you are. We don't coach our witnesses. We prep them and know what they're doing, but know what they uh, want to say. And if there are inconsistencies, we pick those apart. And the reality is that you will always have witnesses who have differing stories because memories fade. People get nervous on the stand. They may be trying to minimize their part in whatever, uh, whatever story they're trying to tell because we all put ourselves number one. And Honestly, the type of witness that Jay Wilds is on the stand for Adnan Syed's trial is not unlike most witnesses in general, whether they are lying or not. And so this case is not out of the ordinary with respect to a major witness having changing stories. It's something you have to deal with. It is something that you certainly turn over to the other side so that it is all completely fair game and fodder for cross-examination. And the reason you have it all out for the jury to hear is they hear all of the fodder for cross-examination. They are cross-examined. And you compare it against all the other facts in this case. Now, Adnan Syed was not convicted based on just one person's testimony. It was a long trial. There was a lot of evidence that came in that had nothing to do with Jay Wilds. But the jury gets to listen to all of the versions of Jay's story, hear him cross-examined, hear him taken apart, and also hear all of the other witnesses who are called to trial, as well as the experts and the evidence put against it. And the jury is charged with weighing whether they believe Jay or any of the witnesses for that matter, and weigh whether this man should be convicted. This is all incredibly important and why we say it's important for you to read, uh, everyone who's interested in this case, to read the trial transcript, because you begin to see that There is no hiding the ball. There can't be any hiding of the ball. It is all out for the jury to consider, which was done in this case. And one of the things that you do when you have witnesses like that, and and you really do often have them, because as we always say, it'd be great if your best witness in a drug conspiracy was the little old lady in the choir from the church, but usually it's not going to be. A lot of times your witnesses initially, when they interact with the police, will lie to them. Sometimes they lie to us. I mean, we've been in the room when a witness broke and admitted what we knew to be true because we had independent evidence. And from that point forward, they were they were honest, but they certainly got cross-examined about that at trial. And what you have to do is you have to take the other evidence and look at it. And with Jay Wilds, he has a story that is inconsistent in many places, but is consistent in a lot of places. And we lay out those consistencies. And essentially, Jay's story is that Adnan, the day of the murder, told him to take his cell phone in his car to pick him up later, that he was going to to kill Hay, and there are cell phone number one. He absolutely did that. There's no question. There's no dis- there's no dispute that he gave Jay his cell phone in his car. There's also witnesses who heard overheard Adnan Syed that morning tell Hay that he would need a ride because he didn't have his car because it was in the shop, which isn't true. 
And Adnan actually would tell a police officer that very same day that he was supposed to get a ride with Hay, but by the time he showed up, she had already left, so he missed it. So things like that are backing up this story that Jay tells. Jay knew the location of Hay's car, which up to that point had not been found. And when you look at the location of the car and you look at those cell phone pings, that night there's an outgoing call to Jen Pusateri that pings over where the car was found. The call to Jen Pusateri was to meet them so that she could pick up Jay and take him home. Things like that are backing up his story. They're supporting his story. Adnan even says he was with Jay when he got the call from the police that Hay was missing. So there's just, there are so many things about Jay's story that aren't in dispute, facts that you just can't deny. And so even if there are inconsistencies, and there always will be, the overarching story, one that, by the way, he told to Jen Pusateri that night and that she actually told to the police first. She's the first person to tell the story to the police, not Jay. So, you know, if you think Jay is somehow being guided by the police to, to frame Adnan, well, that doesn't make any sense because they would have had to have done that with, Jay, with Jen first. And when Jen tells that story, her lawyer's sitting with her and her mom's sitting with her, which is a much better situation than Jay, who did not have an attorney. And when you combine all those things together, you start to think, yeah, there's some inconsistencies, there's some problems, but we can bolster the things that matter and we can surround it with all these other facts. And at the end of the day, the jury is going to believe, look, I don't know that everything he said was true, but what I do know is true is that Adnan did The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. 
The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery danger, and romance, and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So let's stay on Jay Wilds for a little bit. A lot of people believe Jay Wilds lies about everything and that he had ulterior motive for placing the blame on Adnan. Now, a lot of people also believe that he made a plea deal with law enforcement before giving them any information. Well, I mean, I think people have speculated several things about why Jay may have made up, quote unquote, made up the story. Jay was someone with a criminal record. He was someone who sold drugs. He had been involved in altercations with the police before. His lawyer, which he did not get until much later than he should have had one. And this is something we point out when we talk about our in our episodes. If you want to point to some police misconduct, some real policeman misconduct, Jay's second interview, he should have had an attorney. He asked for an attorney. By that point, he'd incriminated himself in this murder as, as an accomplice, and they didn't give him one. And when he did get an attorney, it was someone who had been a public defender, who'd actually been a prosecutor and a public defender, and had gone into private practice, who I think was the best thing that ever happened to Jay because she was a really good lawyer. 
And I think she recognized some of those issues and was able to get him a pretty good deal. Now, one thing I'll say about that, the deal he made was he would plead guilty to accessory after the fact, which is a very serious felony. And, you know, he was looking it up to five years. I think everybody thought he would get time. But I think if you read between the lines, what actually happened there was some of the things that had happened when the police were talking to him led the judge to go ahead and give him probation instead. It's a good deal. Um, but I think it also helps Jay that at least according to the story he tells, his involvement in the crime is all after Hay is, is deceased. I think this is very important because for so long when I looked into this case, I thought, well, of course Jay is lying and he has reason to lie and he's not going to face any consequence, but that's not true. He was going to face consequences for his actions and for his involvement and this murder case. Now that's hundred percent right. I mean, the first time they bring him in, it's not like he's sitting there with his lawyer and has a, you know, an immunity agreement on the table. He, he walks right into, and this is not unusual either. I mean, we see this all the time and I'm always surprised by the number of people who in their first conversation with the police will admit to everything. And then they get a lawyer involved and the lawyer's like, man, I wish you just asked for me earlier. Right. And Jay, that first interview, he walks right into this accessory charge. And he was looking at, at, a, at a good amount of time the first time he's told this story. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That deal that he ended up making wasn't made until much later when he finally did get a lawyer, frankly, much later than he should have. And I think if anybody would have had a complaint, had let's say he had, been, he had gone to trial and been convicted, I think he actually would have had a pretty good argument on appeal that a lot of his statements were taken in violation of his constitutional rights. Now, that doesn't help Adnan Syed at all because Adnan can't defend his constitutional rights, but they're, you know, do not, do not, do not mistake our sort of general defense for the prosecution in this case to mean that there weren't some, some real misconduct going on. There absolutely was, which is probably not surprising to most people who are familiar with Baltimore. It's just, it didn't really involve Adnan Syed so much as some of the things the police did when getting Jay's story were were in violation of his rights. Well, and let's stay on that a little bit there for a second with the with the conspiracy theory that the Baltimore police wanted to do a frame job on Adnan Syed and that they actually knew the location of the vehicle, the missing uh, Heyman Lee's missing vehicle and that they they kept that purposely had Jay lead them to the vehicle even though they again, according to the conspiracy theory, already knew of its location or may have placed it there through and through blue blood right here. And that's not going to change. However, we've covered enough cases in the Baltimore area to see obvious, clear signs of corruption with certain pockets of that police department um, and other politicians in, in that that city as well. So if it, if it were to be the strangest of conspiracies that would were to be true, Baltimore's a likely venue for that. But what would be the motive? I don't understand what the motivation would be or where that, that conspiracy, the seed of that conspiracy theory even comes from. It's a really good question. And there is a lot to unpack there. And look, we 
we are the first ones. We, we'd like to think that we are the first ones to call out police misconduct when we see it. It absolutely does exist. And we'd like to think, and we do think in our experience, that it is a small percentage of what there is. But let's talk about this particular case and the Baltimore police here. In order for this to have been a massive frame job conspiracy, there are so many things you'd have to believe that don't make any sense in this case. So let's just take the two people that you have at the story when the police are trying to decide who to frame. You have Jay Wilds, who has a criminal record. He's a black man living in Baltimore who's already had scuffles with the police. He's known to be a drug dealer. He is often around people who um, are in trouble with the law. He himself has described himself at this time as a criminal element of Baltimore. So he views himself as a criminal. And then you have, on the other hand, Adnan Syed, an honor student who regularly attends mosque with his family, is involved in his mosque, um, and he is in the honor classes with the rest of the honor students, applying for colleges, likely going to get into college, a smart boy, a very popular uh, student at Woodlawn High School. He is the prom prince. You know, he's not only liked by students, uh, he's liked by teachers. He is really kind of the shining example of what a what you'd want in a student. So between these two people, it really boggles my mind why the police would choose to frame the honor student who has absolutely no criminal record over the the person who is known to have a criminal record who, uh, you know, continues to to be involved in the selling of drugs, that they would choose Adnan to be the one to frame. And then on top of all that, why would they have the person that this entire frame job relies on would be the person who is least credible, someone who does have a criminal record? And if, in fact, they wanted their entire frame job to rely on Jay Wilds, someone who, in the court of law, as we've already seen, is going to have a lot of credibility issues, why would it be that the main point of their frame job would be to have him lead them to the car when they've already put out a bolo, be on the lookout for every police officer to be on the lookout for Hayes' car for weeks and they're not able to find it? I mean, those of us who work in law enforcement or are law enforcement adjacent recognize that even if you're alleging, even if you're alleging you know, corruptness within a department. There are many individual actors within a department. Usually a a bad actor is not going to be an entire department. Think about all the people. You can barely get people to, you know, turn in their timesheets on time, much less all be part of this big conspiracy where there's a be on the lookout for Hayes car and no one happened to accidentally slip up and actually find the car if you're the police, and say, you know, be on the lookout, but don't actually be on the lookout because we're going to have our criminal element of Baltimore find the car for us so that he can be our main witness against this honor student. I, I mean, I mean, that is that is such a, a difficult and also, frankly, stupid frame job. Don't put out the bolo. Pretend to put out a bolo, but don't actually put out a bolo. It wasn't a pretend bolo. They they really did have these announcements out to all law enforcement and not just their own department across jurisdictions to be on the lookout for this car. You'd have to be coordinating this frame job across multiple jurisdictions when we know that it's really difficult to have all of your jurisdictions row in a line. We talk about this uh, a lot of times when there are jurisdictional fights between the state and the local and the federal um, law enforcement agencies. 
you're looking at this times 10 across basically the eastern seaboard. I'm not saying that police corruption doesn't exist. But this police corruption would be one beyond the imagination of any Hollywood writer. And when you look at the facts of what is happening in this case, it is so incredibly unlikely and also kind of the worst way to go about a frame job. Because if they knew where Hayes' car was, they took they you would have to believe that they took this incredibly risky, risky step of leaving it there for weeks unprocessed, not looking for evidence. Or, by the way, if you know where where her car is, why not just plant something of Adnan's in there? That is a great way to frame someone, to put their DNA in there or to put, you know, a a report card or whatever in her car. Instead, you're going to have to go through this, you know, hoop jumping exercise of having your witness, Jay Wiles, lead you to a car where you knew it was and you could have actually planted much better evidence to frame him frame Adnan if that's what you wanted to do. I like what you said there, Alice, about risking leaving the vehicle there. Okay, look, God bless Baltimore and the good people of Baltimore, but it is not the safest city in in America, and it is certainly a city that has higher rates of crime. And to where, where do they, when he does, when Jay does lead the police to the vehicle, what part of Baltimore is that vehicle found? It's just east of uh, Leakin Park. It's pretty close to Leakin Park, which, as everybody knows, in Baltimore and anybody who's seen The Wire is where everybody dumps the body. So not necessarily the best part of Baltimore. Right. So to And, and they put out the bolos to be on the lookouts a couple of times leading up to him leading them to the vehicle. And this is over the course of a couple of weeks, correct? Yes. They they were looking for the car since she disappeared, but when they found her body, they really picked it up, including asking for the entire eastern seaboard to look for it. Right. And so if you know that the vehicle is there and you're going to build a lot of your case around that vehicle, you, in that city, you're running the risk of somebody jacking that car and stealing your stealing your evidence, right? <laughs> like stealing stealing your your uh, what you're going to one build your case on and two give some credibility to your already questionable witness that you're going to eventually put on the stand. And Nick, that's a great point. Not only are the police looking for it, you know, this this case was on the news. It was parked, you know, like in an alleyway. What if so you let's say you have all of your police law enforcement on board to not call it in, even though there's a bolo. They know where the car is, but not a single police officer calls it in. How do you prevent all of the individual passerbyers who are not part of law enforcement who may have accidentally seen it and think, oh, my goodness, I, I just saw that the police are looking for this car and I this is my daily route to work. I'm just a private citizen. I'm going to call it in. You know, that that is a huge risk, especially if we're talking about weeks of letting this car sit out in the open. It wasn't in, in a garage. It was in an alleyway, you know. Not a lot of people traveled this alleyway, but it was still out in the open. So you're facing a lot of risk that a you know a good Samaritan who's not part of law enforcement will accidentally call the car in. And just two other points I want to make, because we've been talking about the evidence that would be lost. And I think that's a huge point. And it, it makes you wonder if they wanted to do that, all they had to do was process the car, not tell anybody they had it, and then use it. Have him lead you to the lot where it was. It's not there, but it's because you've already claimed it. You could have done that. The second thing is they don't know what they're going to find in it. You know, what if they do this whole frame job with with Jay and they go out to the car and they open the front door and 
there's a serial killer's driver's license sitting in the in the driver's seat and he, he lost it. And now they're like, well, shoot, well, what do we do now? We got this whole frame job going and here's the evidence of the person who actually did it. And the last thing, talk about cell phone pings. If you assume that the police either knew where it was or planted it there so he could go find it, it just so happens to be exactly where the cell phone pinged when Adnan and Jay were together when Jay is going back to talk to Jen. And one thing we know for certain is that at the point the police talked to Jay for the first time, they did not have that information. They would not have known that. So that is either an incredible coincidence or, or something else is going on with this frame job. I've always struggled with this case, whether or not Adon was innocent or guilty. It's a red light case for me. And I think one of the issues in this case is because there's a time period where she goes missing and a time period where she's found. And the information we get from the eyewitnesses becomes a little blurry. It becomes a little confusing. So it's always a problem. Everybody talks about this. You guys talk about it on your show. The more time between when someone goes missing, when the police go into action, when a body's found, when a suspect is arrested, when witnesses are interviewed, the more time that passes, the more you're going to have confusion. And you have that in this case. And you see it in things like nobody can really confirm when, you know, Hay was interviewed by the news. You would think that would be something everybody could confirm. And for a very long time, people thought that happened on the day she disappeared. Seems like it actually didn't. Seems like it happened about a week before that. Stuff like that. Eyewitness accounts of, of seeing, hey, like go get some french fries or, or do this or do that or she was supposed to go to the wrestling match. There was no wrestling match that night. So those, there are little things that you certainly lose, which is, by the way, another reason why when the police find the body a month after she disappears, if they had the car, they would have processed it right then because every second that passes is seconds that you're going to lose evidence. You know, you may have DNA that degrades. The car might get stolen, as we talked about. You need to talk to people. You need to move forward. But the thing about it is, I think there's been a lot made of sort of memories changing and people forgetting. But, and that was a huge focus in Serial, the very first episode of Serial. She spends half the first episode saying things like, if someone asked you what you were doing six weeks ago, you know, would you be able to tell them and all that stuff? But there are some huge pieces of information that we knew immediately. You know, there's this eternal debate about whether or not Ad, Adnan asked Hay for a ride. That day, that very day that she went missing, he told a police officer he asked her for a ride. So, like, we can debate that, and we can debate how people's memories shift, and maybe people forgot certain things, but we have contemporaneous evidence that he did that. Things like that, I think, are, are much harder to chalk up to, to memories fading. Now, I will say this. A big problem we have is investigations happening 17, 18, 19 years later. And we talk about that in some of our cases as well, where people are asked to explain things that happened 19 years ago, 20 years ago, and, and they don't remember. They don't remember what happened at all. And that adds another level of confusion. But I think you can get down to some pretty important facts that we know because of documentation in and around the event. There will always be some stuff lost, and there's a lot of that in this case, but I don't know how important it really is at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important to know here because with any case, even if there was no lag in the investigation, you're going to have either inconsistent stories or people's memories are just going to not be perfect. We've talked about this a lot, that circumstantial evidence is just as weighty as um, direct evidence, but the, the reality in the court of law, but the reality is that direct evidence, eyewitness testimony is faulty. 
not just because of memory, but because our brains um, process things differently. And we may not always know that what we are witnessing at the time is going to be of evidentiary value later. So we're not taking notes at the time. We're not making sure to parse through every detail for purposes of uh, regurgitating at a later time, which is why eyewitness testimony is not the golden standard necessarily. Taken in conjunction with other evidence can be very helpful. But in this case, I think so much hay has been made about um, parts of people's memories that we can't remember, but you have to parse through what is important for purposes of the elements of the crime that Adnan was charged with or and whether it's just going to be ancillary to the real story here. And when you look at the brass tacks and things that we can confirm, a very a very sturdy story actually begins to emerge. And it doesn't really matter the, the things that are gray on the outside because they don't go to the core of what happened that day and whether it's important for purposes of um, the charges that were brought against Adnan and the ultimate conviction. Brett, what was your, and I want to focus in on the timeline still here. What, when you're putting together your bullet points for this very expansive timeline, what was the one item on that timeline that you were looking forward to diving deeper in and figuring out the details of such? And it doesn't have to be something that pointed toward guilt or toward innocence. It could be something that, that had little to do with the case at all. But when you're putting together this this very big timeline, what was the one thing that that jumped off the page to you that you said that now I want to know more about that and and what did you learn? So there are a couple things. It, it's hard <laughs> it's hard to narrow it down to one. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing that that really jumped out to me, and I think has has jumped out to a lot of people, and that's there's always this question about Leakin Park, and there's questions about cell phone pings and how accurate they are, and sometimes you'll hear people say things like the cell phone data is useless. Now I pulled up a entertainment weekly article, which as we all know is the ultimate source of news. And one of the bullet points about this is the cell phone pings mean nothing, which is so absurd on so many levels. Cause number one, cell phone calls tell you who you were calling, tell you what time. And even to the extent people argue that some of the cell phone pings are unreliable, they're incoming calls. And the same data sheet that says incoming calls are not reliable for location specifically says that outgoing calls are. And so a lot of people focus on there are two incoming calls that ping off the Leakin uh, Park Tower. And so people debate, can you trust those or not? Well, one thing that I thought was interesting is the phone, there's only one other time that the phone actually pings in Leakin Park, and it's on January 27th. And on January 26th, sort of late at night, Jay and Jen Pusateri are together. She gets pulled over. The police get Jay out of the car. They start to harass him. I think is how he'd put it. He starts to kind of fight back, and eventually they arrest him. So Jay gets arrested late at night on the 26th. The next day, on the 27th, is the only other time the cell phone pings in Leakin Park, and it pings from an outgoing call. Which means, unlike the incoming calls the night of the, the murder, this is one that everybody agrees is accurate. And it puts that cell phone, Adnan's cell phone, in Leakin Park. And it's to someone that Jay knows. And I think the natural sort of question I had was, is that Adnan driving into Leakin Park, having heard that Jay has been arrested, seeing whether or not the police are there? 
and driving by the location of the burial, seeing that there are no police there, and calling Patrick to try and figure out what exactly happened to Jay. Why has he been arrested? So for me, that was a time that was a time period that really stood out. Seeing that the body had not been recovered either. Right, exactly. And the 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 thing is too that is Adnan's cell phone in Leakin Park, the very same park that he will later say that he has no awareness of the of its existence. He's not been there. He doesn't know that people put bodies there. Correct. Yeah, and and that's one hundred percent true. And and that's one of those things. And there's another there's another point when you you read through various uh, parts of the case file where before that call even happens, the the bus, I think the track team or one of the teams is actually driving through Leakin Park and Adnan's on the bus and they're talking about how this is where they bury all the bodies. And it's just the notion that this park where all the bodies end up, which is a couple miles away from Woodlawn that everybody in high school wouldn't know about that, I think is pretty silly. But when you combine that with the fact that Adon absolutely was in that park with his cell phone making phone calls, I think it really makes you question a lot of, of what you've been told about, about this case and about Adon in particular. And we were all in high school once, and I've got to tell you, there, it's very difficult for me to believe that the teenagers are not talking about the park nearby where the bodies are found. Um, like I, that, that has to have been something that comes up, uh, especially around Halloween time or just anytime you're joking about somebody being missing it, that that's, but you know, we can, we can give him the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, maybe he never did hear of any of those things from any of his, his friends or, or classmates, but what we cannot and what is not in dispute is that his cell phone is in a park that he will later claim that he has no awareness of that park, the name of it, or that, uh, that bodies sometimes are recovered from that park. So that, I mean, that, that is a, a pretty big hurdle for him to, to clear after the fact. Alice, for you, what was the, what was the, the moment on that timeline that, for you that you wanted to learn more about? Again, it doesn't have to have anything to do with innocence or guilt, but just something that, that jumped off the page that caught your attention that you wanted to learn more about and what did you learn? Yeah, I you know, I thought it was really interesting. We've heard about Jen Pusateri a lot. I've seen her um, you know, talked about in other podcasts and obviously she's talked about her her role in this a lot. So I've I've not really dived into Jen Pusateri's um uh interviews with the police before we uh decided to cover this case. And I thought picking apart what she would have known and when she knew it and the fact that she told really Jay's story to the police before Jay told the police the story was enlightening for me because she would have only gotten her information from Jay, which helps put us kind of the timeline of when these things would have happened. Because if there, in fact, was a conspiracy and that Jay was coached by the police to tell a certain story to be able to frame Adnan, it would have had to come at a time before Jen even went to the police, before Jay ever had contact with the police, which was not something that I'd really heard before. And so, again, that timeline of when stories began to take shape and who they were told by um, were were very helpful for me in understanding, okay, if there were a frame job, if there were coaching by the police, they would have had to start coaching Jay well before he even had contact with the police. Well, how would they have done that? How would they have gotten to Jen Pusateri before that? And, and you know, one thing that that I didn't quite grasp on until we dove into this was the fact that when 
the first time Jen talks to the police, you know, she she's she kind of says, I don't know anything, which I think we could all completely uh, empathize with. If she she was not there uh, for the burial, she wasn't there for any part of it. She heard about something very disturbing from Jay after the fact that she's afraid. She doesn't know what's going on. And if she were to say that she knew anything, she could be incriminating herself or her friend, Jay. And so I understand the first time she's saying, I don't know anything. But then when she goes back and gives her whole statement to the police and she does it not alone, but with her attorney and her mother sitting there, it makes the whole situation of police coaching a lot more difficult. You have not only an adult in the room, her mother, but you also have a professional, an attorney sitting there. That type of coaching is is just it's going to be very, very difficult. And it makes the whole police coaching aspect of the conspiracy theory a lot more difficult to overcome to 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 prove in this instance when you see Jen's story how she tells it and how it takes shape um and again that's something that I I think the the timeline really begins to tell the story because of when she speaks and how she could have known her information which was from Jay and just one other thing on that and something I think we should all remember and I think people forget Jay and Jen I mean they're both teenagers Jay's out of high school, but I think he's 19 at the time. Jen may be 19, but they're both teenagers. And you have to believe that the police, in concocting this theory, have decided we're going to hang this whole case on these two teenagers, one of whom has a criminal record as a drug dealer. We're going to put all our faith, which includes keeping our jobs and, you know, possibly staying out of prison, because usually when you frame people for a crime, that's a crime in of itself. We're going to put all our faith on these teenagers and send them forth into the world. And here we sit 20 years later, and to this day, neither one of them has said it was all a lie. The police coached us. You know, we were, we were pressured by the police. Neither one of them have done that. I think that's significant. Well, and one thing I like that you guys did real well was the presentation of Don and clearing up the... So Don is dating Heyman Lee at the time of, of her death. And... Adnan Syed is the ex-boyfriend. Now, I I haven't gone back and listened to Serial. And again, this is not anything critical of their presentation. In fact, I enjoyed I enjoyed the podcast very much. And every year around Thanksgiving on that long weekend, I usually go back and revisit something uh, from yesteryear, maybe an old book or something and read it again or pick, pick something up watch watch an old movie for the second time this year it might be serial uh listening to your guys's episodes piqued my interest and i might have to go back and listen to serial again it was that good but i i feel like there if i remember their presentation correctly yes you're aware of dawn early in the episodes but it's not until late in that first season that the idea is pushed forward that whoa he may he may be a suspect here he may be somebody that we should have some consideration of did he do this and with your guys's timeline you you very clearly stated that the police looked at this guy and when they start looking at him and they start looking into this case they're very quickly led to Adnan who they believe is a better suspect And can you kind of just take us a little bit and expand on that a little bit for those that may not be familiar with that part of that detail of the investigation? Because a lot of people's perception is what was delivered to them in serial that, that, oh, we spent so much time 
going through the details of Adnan and Jay and, oh, here's this other guy that we should give consideration to when in fact it was, it was very likely the reversal. And look, I, I, there's nothing wrong with taking a look at Don and, and seeing whether or not, you know, there's any connection there. Certainly the police would have done that. He's the current boyfriend. He's going to be an initial suspect. They talked to him multiple times. You know, they, there are notes. If you read the case file, you know, their notes are like, Hey, it didn't seem that broken up about her, her leaving. Cause at the time, you know, for all they knew, and I don't know why they really thought this, but there were a lot of people who thought she went to California. I don't really understand that. It's We see this a lot. You guys see this a lot in cases where people disappear, and inexplicably the police are like, well, maybe they ran away. It's like, no, they didn't. But there's nothing wrong with looking at him, eliminating him as a suspect, and moving on. But the problem you have, and why we need to move on from Don, is when you look at the timeline, Hay is supposed to pick up her cousin, I believe it's her cousin. Some people say it's her niece. I'm not hundred percent sure, but she's supposed to pick up her cousin at around three 30 at her school. She, she's very conscientious about that. She does it every day and she doesn't pick her up. And what we all know for certain knowing, Hey, knowing that fact is that by that point, whatever was going to happen to her, it happened. Now, maybe it was, she'd been kidnapped and she was killed later. Maybe it was, she was killed, but the criminal action had happened. And you have Don, who is working. Don, who has a time card, a computerized time card that can't be changed later without it showing up on the time card, who is not, he's still at work at that time. There are people who say he's still at work. The, the opportunity for him to do that in that time period is not there, nor is the motive. He'd been dating Hay for two weeks. By all accounts, they were very much in the honeymoon phase. That Hay's last diary entry, the night before she died is this lovey-dovey thing about Dawn. Somehow you have to believe she went from that to they get into some kind of altercation at a time when he's supposed to be at work. He murders her, and then somehow he hides the car, buries the body. Nobody notices. He gets back to work. Nobody notices, and he gets up to his house at about the time you'd expect him to be there. How, how you can fit all that into the timeline is kind of beyond me. And honestly, the only reason to think Don did it is because you don't want it to be Adnan. There's no actual evidence that he did. And I just feel like he is one of those victims of true crime where there are people out there who get wrapped up in these cases. He'd known Hay for a couple months. He dated her for a couple weeks. For his entire life, he has had to deal with people questioning whether or not he murdered her. And that's just another tragedy on top of a lot of the tragedies in this case. Yeah, that may be a little bit of a misfortune, but he was dating a girl that went missing. He was dating a girl that was murdered. I believe he had just as much motive as Adnan because we don't know if Heyman Lee told him, hey, I, I'm not interested in you. I'm going to get back with Adnan. We don't know that. I think he could have been looked at harder, questioned harder. I mean, he was the current boyfriend. She goes missing. He doesn't try to call her cell phone. No record of that. A lot of people state that she was actually going to meet Don before she actually picked up her cousin. So there's some question there. And then he is just happens the day she goes missing to be working at a location that he never worked at before, never worked at again. And the time card, I believe, was handwritten by his mother's girlfriend. I mean, there's just enough t for me that he should have been looked at 
harder. Well, I'll just address a couple of those. Number one, that wasn't the day she said she was going to meet up with him. This is one of the things people get wrong. The day she said she was going to meet up with him was the day that they were going to play Randallstown in wrestling. And she had written a letter for him that she was going to leave with him. That actually was a week before. We know that because the person who said she was going to meet up with him was the other scorer for the wrestling team. And she was very upset when she didn't show up. Well, that happened the week before. So that is an example of sort of memory getting whatever. Number two, she's not questioning the relationship. There's no evidence she is. All the evidence is that she is head over heels in love with him. Number three, I can show you the computerized time card, which you could not enter more than a couple days after this happened. So you would have to believe that whoever's helping him get away with this is doing it, knowing that he's killed someone and, and doing it before the body's even found, which I also don't find to be very believable. As far as the phone calls, two things. Adnan never called her either, but people say he never called her. That's not actually what he said. He said he couldn't recall whether he ever called her. Number two, he was over at their house. He was visiting with Hayes' family a couple days after this happened. So this notion that he had no concern about her and wasn't worried about her, it just isn't true. When you're diving into a case that's so polarizing and the evidence is drawing you to the conclusion that Adnan is guilty, was there a piece of evidence that kept steering you to the direction of maybe that he was innocent? Well, the things for me, I mean, number one, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier, listening to Serial, I found Adnan to be likable. and I, I know a lot of people didn't. I found him to be likable. I wanted him to be innocent. And if I hadn't seen it happen so often that very likable people do really terrible things, I think it would be really hard for me to get past that. And I think it's, it's hard for a lot of people to get past that. I mean, he's not somebody who has a history of violence. He's somebody who... As far as we know, in prison was was a perfect model prisoner. You know, if if he stays out of prison, I, I don't doubt that he will probably never commit a crime again. That, you know, you compare that to the person who had to strangle this 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 young woman to death, and it feels incongruous. You know, when you think about evidence, I mean, look, Alonzo Sellers is not a terrible suspect. Anyone who finds the body is always going to be a suspect. He has sort of some weird proclivities. He likes to go streaking. We know that he's assaulted somebody in a vehicle before. I mean, these are things that make you want to look at him, you know, if you're the police. There's not a lot of evidence that he's involved beyond him finding the body, but, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a decent suspect. One thing a lot of people point to is the DNA that was on Hay's shoes. The problem with that is it's touched DNA on her shoes in the back of her car. And as far as we know, it's not connected to anyone. Obviously, if one day you could say, hey, you know, advances in technology, we were able to show that this DNA is Alonzo Sellers. That would be a pretty powerful piece of evidence. And I think at that point, you'd have to start really looking at what in the world's going on. Because remember, in order for anyone else to have done it, there, there has to be that massive conspiracy, the one we talked about. All of a sudden, this thing that seems so incredible, it's impossible to believe that anybody would do this. All of a sudden, it becomes more likely. Now, the way you get around that, and we talk about this some, well, we talk about this a lot on the episodes, is if somehow Jay is involved. You know, if Jay is your main suspect, a lot of the conspiracy stuff falls away. You no longer have to believe that the police are coaching him or the police took him to the car. It could all just be because Jay was involved. Problems with Jay. Jay has the same problems as a lot of people. There's no 
apparent motive. And because Adnan puts himself with Jay pretty much the entire day, it's hard to even imagine how Jay could have done it and Adnan not been involved. So, you know, there's no huge red flag sticking out to me. I think, and, and Alice and I talk about this sometimes, you look at a case based on the evidence you have. If one day there's more evidence, that's when you start to reevaluate it. But given what we have now, I think you have a really strong case that Adnan's involved and very weak cases against most of the other people that you think of as being possible suspects. Yeah. And, you, you know, I think I think that's what's really hard about this case is Adnan, to me, is a very likable person. And I, I find no no joy at all that we conclude that the evidence absolutely points to Adnan being guilty. I don't want this honor student who, by all accounts, is going was going to be a very productive member of society to be a murderer, to be a murderer who, you know, is shut away and no longer able to contribute to society. I think this is a tragedy, a tragedy, not only for Heyman Lee, but also for Adnan and what he could have become as well. But like Brett said, too, too often we see cases where people who seem like they couldn't do horrendous things are not only capable, um, but they do do it. And it it often happens to be the person who looks to have, um, you know, their act together, to have no uh, no proclivities to do any criminal element. But we we see that enough to know that we can't just buy into what a book looks like on its cover. And so as much as I don't want Adnan to be guilty, I can't ignore the evidence that seems so clear here. And there wasn't a piece of evidence that th- that I thought, man, I don't know that this, this could this could be the bit that um, makes him innocent, but I'm just going to ignore it. There really was none of that. And remember, it's a game of not just it's not just making sure the evidence fits Adnan's conviction, but rather, if not Adnan, who else? And in this case, every single viable suspect truly falls away when you take a hard look at the evidence. And the only the only one that it really points to when you look at the evidence is Adnan, whether you start there or not. That And the evidence absolutely led me to his guilt. I do want to say this. It's only a tragedy for what Adnan could have become if he is innocent. Um, if he did do this and he got caught, got convicted, what he would have become is very likely an abuser or he would have impulsively killed somebody else at some point. Um, so I do want to be clear about that in my feelings anyway, but the, but you're, you're absolutely right, Alice, that the evidence to me, when you review the totality of it, it suggests that portions of Jay's story are truthful. And then if you were to take that bit of knowledge, then you have to go, okay, well, if parts of his story are the truth, then you're only left with really three conclusions. In my opinion, when you start talking about other, other parties and if, you know, if the, this unknown person did it, or if, uh, Don did it, very quickly, they become problems. There, there's clear problems with those other suspects because of the evidence. The evidence suggests that some of Jay's story is correct. And so that means three possibilities to me. Jay did it, Adnan did it, or the two of them did it together. I think that's right. I, 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 don't, I don't know how you get past that. And we talk about the cell phone pings and, and once again, what's helpful and what's not helpful. And if you if you believe, I mean, look, there's a tight timeline here. 
And the fact that there's a tight timeline, it helps Adnan on the one hand, because he can say, and he says this in serial. And, and the prosecution, in my view, in their opening statement, and I think in their closing as well, made a mistake saying that the 236 call was the she's dead, come get me call. Because that made the timeline even tighter. And there's no, there's no reason to think that's true. Jay doesn't say that. Jay doesn't testify to that. And there are other phone calls that make more sense. But if you put that aside for a second, put the 236 phone call aside for a second, you have a situation where we know Jay has the cell phone in the hour around when Hay would have had to have gone missing. And he's making calls. And he's taking calls. And all those calls are pinging away from the high school. So if he's not near the high school where Hay is, and he's actually south of the high school, and Hay eventually is going to make her way north of the high school to pick up her cousin, where is the opportunity? Assume for a second that, you know, well, it doesn't matter, I guess, whether Adnan's doing it, but where is the opportunity for Jay to have been involved in the actual kidnapping and murder of Hay? Because his cell phone, and by his, I mean Adnan's, doesn't start to move towards the Best Buy until more like 3.15, at which point, She's definitely been grabbed. That's when it starts moving towards the Best Buy. Then it's at the Best Buy for a little while. Then it starts moving towards Woodlawn. And we know that Adnan has, or at least Jay says, and not only Jay, Jen says in her first statement to the police. She says Adnan told Jay he had to go to some practice of some sort. She wasn't even sure what kind. She just knew that he was supposed to go to some practice so he could be seen so he'd have an alibi. And what do you see? You see the cell phone start moving north towards the high school, according to the track coach who testified at trial, he testified at trial that track started around four o'clock. Jay's making phone calls at 348 next to Woodlone High School. So exactly where he'd need to be to be dropping off Adnan so he can go to track practice. You look at that stuff and it's like, how is it possible for Jay to have done this by himself? Join us back here in the garage tomorrow for the conclusion of our interview with Brett and Alice of the Prosecutor's Podcast. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.